Welcome to 24 Faithful. This is an opportunity for us to be able to go back and review over the past seasons of 24. Last week, we finished up season number one, and today we are jumping into the beginning of season number two and looking forward to being able to do that. My name is Joshua Rivers, and I am joined today by uh, Joel, and I am glad to be able to have this discussion with him. Joel, how you doing? I'm doing all right, Josh. Guess it's uh, guess it's just me and you today. Yeah, so Bradley had some prior engagements, and so he is unable to join us. If, if Mark was with us, he would probably come up with some sort of uh, – location where Bradley is hiding out or whatever. Like, yes, I, I think he still has the map. <laughs> <laughs> you listen to us last season, every week, Mark came up with a certain location throughout the country or world or whatever, where Bradley was coming to us from and he was traveling around all over the place. So it was interesting. But anyway, um, <laughs> neither one of them are with us today. So we're here to talk about season number two, which takes place about 18 months after Season number one, we see that after season one, Jack leaves CTU and he basically isolates himself. His daughter doesn't want to have anything to do with him and he doesn't want to have anything to do with anybody except his daughter, but she's not returning his calls and things like that. So he is basically isolated. And then Kim ends up becoming a lived-in nanny for a family called the Mathesons. And then since Jack stepped down from CTU, George Mason became the director of CTU Los Angeles. And he was expecting that was going to be a short-term thing, but turns out that he was promised a position in Washington. And so he was waiting for that, but it never happened. And of course, David Palmer wins the election and becomes president, even though all of the events that took place on day one and his divorce to Sherry, uh, he still won the presidency. And then we also see as we get started with season number two here that it's been discovered that a terrorist group, which we are told is called Second Wave, that they have a nuclear bomb and they're planning to detonate it inside Los Angeles sometime that day. They start scrambling around, okay, what can we figure out about this group, Second Wave? And CTU discovers that they had at one time a federal agent that had previously worked undercover to bring down that group, and that was Jack Bauer. And so they are trying to reach out to Jack to get him to come in to be able to aid them in this case. So, Joel, why don't you pick it up from there as we look at Jack in the situation that he's at? Well, Jack is, um, you know, you can tell at the beginning of season two that Jack is kind of still really hasn't gotten over the death of his wife a year and a half earlier. He's got himself a nice little caveman beard going. <laughs> Obviously, they don't live in the same house anymore because you can tell he's living in a different house. Jack is conflicted because Tony has tried to reach out to him. Multiple people have tried to reach out to him, but he's not really wanting to because everything about CTU reminds him of Terry. That is where his wife got killed. So I guess, you know, I can understand him not wanting to go back to CTU because, you know, it's too many bad memories. But it turns out the one person that can bring him back is, of course, President Palmer. So it takes a phone call from, from the president to kind of bring him back in action, so to speak. And, you know, at first he comes back to CTU. You can tell that he's kind of all those memories are washing back to him because you can, you can see even at his house when he saw a picture of his wife 
and his daughter and him. And he just, you know, basically cuddled up in the fetal position on the couch with it, that he was taking it a lot worse than, believe it or not, he was, he looked to be taking it a lot worse than Kim because at least Mm -hmm. Kim, even though she didn't really want to, you know, talk to her dad right now, she was kind of doing a better job at having somewhat of a normal life, you know, since her mom died, as opposed to Jack, who basically shut himself off from the entire world after she died. Yeah. Yeah. I I noticed that too. And so Kim, I think was just hiding it with her work. Whereas Jack was hiding from his work to, to do that because his work would directly remind him of what happened. So he was trying to avoid that, which I think he realized didn't work, but he's, he stayed away for 18 months and avoided everybody for that long. But of course he got roped back in, as you mentioned, it was, Palmer, that was the only one that was able to convince Jack to come in to help with this. And of course, the probably the initial thought is, okay, we'll just bring Jack in for a little bit of time. We'll get this bit of information about how to be able to do this and we'll get out. Well, of course, that is not what happens. And Jack stays on for the whole whole shebang. But as, as he, so he finally gets the CTU. And as, as you mentioned, they're showing all these dramatic scenes and pauses and things like that to kind of add to the mood and the drama of Jack's memory and things like that. But as he's told about the bomb that is about to come off, he, he starts to switch on the hat. Okay. Okay. What are the facts? Where are you guys at on this? What needs to be done? And then he's like, okay, I'm out of here. And he's like, I'm not going to deal with this. I don't work for you anymore. I don't have any responsibility here. So then Tony convinces Jack to stay and help at that point because he says Tony's the only one that he can trust there. And he even tells that straight to George's face like, I don't trust you. (laughs) For some reason, he doesn't trust George. And so after everything that happened, you would think that George would be very trustworthy of being able to take care of things. But (laughs) I'll miss sarcasm. But yeah, so... Georgia, George is such a trustworthy guy. So I love this here when, when Jack does come back in and, and they're like, okay, we have this. Or Jack starts doing his research. He's like, hey, it looks like there's a witness that's going to be testifying against Wald, who is the leader of the second wave group. And they're, so they're like, we got this witness. Let's bring this witness in and we can use that as leverage to be able to to get in there. So they bring this guy in and he's all smug and all that kind of stuff. He's a pedophile and whatever, a whole other list of things like that. And he's getting off clean because he's going to testify against Wald because apparently the government thought Wald was a bigger threat than that guy. But anyway, Jack's like, okay, we need to try to get this information. And the guy's like, yeah, like I'm not going to do anything. I already signed my deal, blah, 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 blah. And Jack's like, okay, fine. And he shoots him on the spot with no warning, freaks George out. <laughs> and I, I love this quote. There, there's two great quotes here. First of all, he tells George, he says, that's the problem with people like you, George. You want results, but you never want to get your hands dirty. And that's like like a picture. Jack is, is the guy that they call in when they want something dirty done that they don't want to do themselves. But it's interesting because then they get upset because Jack gets his hands dirty and it's like, that's going to look bad. It looks like, hey, you want results? This is what it's going to take. <laughs> I mean, you, you, when you made the call to bring Jack back, you had to know that this was not going to be a smooth transition. <laughs> okay. You had to know that you weren't just going to bring Jack back, get some information, and then send him back into the middle of nowhere somewhere. 
Mm-hmm. You had to know that wasn't going to happen. Yeah, just thinking about what, what was the last thing Jack did. He, he, <laughs> he thought his daughter was dead, and he went to the dock, and he killed a dozen people on the spot in a fit of rage. And so what do you think he's going to do in this situation? <laughs> I mean, you, you had to know. And one of my favorite scenes in the entire show was when they brought the witness in, and the witness is just sitting there all all smug, like, I don't have to talk to you guys. I've already made my deal. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I don't have to I don't have to say anything. And then Jack was like, Okay. And then just just pops one in his chest. <laughs> and the look on George's face when he did it was like, <laughs> What what are you doing? And then Jack looks up with the most serious look on his face and says, I'm gonna need a hat saw. <laughs> so, so Jack is like oblivious to the fact that George is, you know, freaking out. <laughs> He's just like, you know what? I'm going to need a hat saw. <clears throat> mm-hmm. And as soon as he asked for the hat saw, even first time viewers of the show could probably get an idea what was coming next. <laughs> so he pops one in him in his chest, cuts his head off, which in itself is just incredibly morbid, but whatever. <laughs> so he cuts, <laughs> so he cuts, he just cuts his head off and he takes it to meet his former contacts with Wald's group, because he, as a matter of fact, he said, um, one of my other favorite lines was you want me to reestablish my cover that took six months and you want me to do it in what a couple of hours. <laughs> so, so that's what, that's why he wanted the witness brought in because he knew that just walking and you can, you can even tell when he met up with those contacts, they were ready to, they were ready to shoot him on site. Mm-hmm. And he knew that he knew that without, something to give Mr. Wald that he wasn't going to get past the front door. That's why it wasn't until he told them to look in the bag that he finally, you know, got a little bit of a reprieve once they saw, you know, the human head inside the bag, like a bowling ball. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That definitely was uh, interesting the way that he was able to do that. And of course they're, they're rushing time because they didn't fully get Jack's cover in place. Um, And so, because they had the whole backstory of Jack, being in jail and and whatever and so they they hadn't gotten that into the system yet because they <laughs> just in case they might check um which I, I i guess all these groups do that kind of stuff they have access to these databases to be able to check all that but anyway very sophisticated yeah and and so they so they're doing that and and you see jack and it's like he's trying to get in but he's trying to act like he's not trying to get in and so, and of course, there's there's the one guy that that's like, okay, there's something off about this guy. This guy shows up today of all days, right right when we're about to do this thing, and uh, so there, there's something wrong with this. And Jack kind of puts him in his place, and, and so that was interesting. And what was it? He broke his hand or twisted his arm or whatever it was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then the guy's like, "Hey, Jack, we need you to come with us because we're down a guy now." And yeah, as a matter of fact, I think he, I think he broke his ankle. Maybe that, yeah, that's what it was. So, <laughs> but yeah, so, so he gets in there and he has no idea what this job is. He just knows, okay, I'm establishing my cover now. I'm, I'm getting in with this. And so we're going to take care of this job and then I'm going to get the walled. Well, then he finds out that, Hey, they're about to blow up CTU. And of course he's, he's ultra professional to where it's like, okay, I need to keep my cover, but I want to protect people at the same time. And we know that he has the same dilemma fast forwarding to season five, but, but yeah, so he keeps his cover, but he still tries to signal and send a warning 
so that people at CTU can get evacuated. But of course, that gets blocked by Eric. Was it Rayburn? And then he's like, no, 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 no. If we if we let them know, they're going to know that that Jack's a, not who he says he is and blah, blah, blah. And and so and so that that whole situation there, which I think we'll come back to come back to that part. But anyway, so CTU gets blown up and that's a pretty devastating thing. You see you see Jack in utter devastation on his face, but then he tries to act like he's excited because they blew up this federal building. Which of course this is this takes place or this uh aired whatever seven years or whatever after the Oklahoma City bombing of the federal building there, which which I live not too far from Oklahoma City, and so it's a big thing here, at least for for us to remember. But this take took place not too long after that. So nationwide it'd be fairly on people's minds of this type of thing happening. I mean the the, the entire second season of twenty four is really when the whole terrorist plot and everything really started to take shape because it's, it's like we discussed in season one. Season one was more of a personal story. You know, it was all about killing David and Jack. There wasn't really anything else about any other collateral damage, no worldwide threat or anything like that. And, you know, season two aired, I want to say 2002, I believe. Mm-hmm. So that was just about a year after the 9-11 attacks. Mm-hmm. So when you, <clears throat> that's what makes this show so amazing is the fact that it was able to stay on the air. <laughs> I mean, around that time period, there were so many shows that were supposed to be greenlit, that were supposed to be on the air, or they were already on the air, that had to be either modified or taken off completely because of you know how sensitive the 9-11 subject was so the fact that it was able to stay on the air was amazing in itself and he gives Rayburn or Lynn he gives her a 30-minute window and Lynn tries to tell the president but Eric Rayburn blocks her pretty much at every turn which I kind of knew because every every season of 24 just about has that slimy government official that's close to the president (laughs) that has their own agenda. That's one of the that's one of the common themes of every 24 season. There's always a terrorist threat and there's always a slimy government official close to the president with their own agenda. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and season 2 was pretty much Eric Rayburn and Jack gave them a 30 minute window. So even though the CTU building was blown up at the time, even though he was devastated, Jack was thinking in the back of his mind, okay, well, most of if not all of the workers should have gotten out of that building by now. He realized that I think when he called, there were like 20, 27 people that have died. And, you know, that, that set Jack off because he, he gave them enough time. And this, this is the part that I don't think Eric Rayburn got was he refused to tell the president because if the president evacuated CTU, then, you know, he thinks second wave would have caught on to Jack tipping him off. But the fact that Jack called to warn them, I'm pretty sure Jack took that into account before he made that phone call. Mm-hmm. So I'm pretty sure that he already had a plan in place to take care of that if that problem ever came up. Yeah, definitely. And so, of course, after that takes place, then we have Jack following up on on a lead that eventually leads to, or so, so he, he gets the walled and he has him, and walled confines himself inside his isolation vault 
I can't think of what it's called, but his his little safe area that no one can really get in unless they have like military grade missiles or something. So he gets him in there and Jack finally gets him to confess his contact of because obviously somebody had to get him information about CTU schematics and all that kind of stuff. Come to find out it was Nina. Of course it was. Yeah. <laughs> so that's where we find out, okay, well, well, Nita working with the Drazens wasn't her only thing going on while she was at CTU. Apparently she was also for sale to other groups and things like that as well. But that leads to a thread to where they, they're able to get Nina and uh, eventually Jack goes in to interrogate after a little while of being able to, he has to convince George by threatening, but it's kind of getting <laughs> ahead a little bit in the story here. Let's see. So they're tracking down a lot of different leads and things like that behind the scenes at CTU. And one of them is where they find where the bomb was made or supposedly made. And George is out and about driving. Everyone thinks he's just following up on something, but he's really just trying to run away. So he gets the call saying, here, come check this out. Since you're out, you're the closest one. And so he reluctantly goes to check out the scene and the process of him doing that he gets exposed to the radiation and from that he's given i mean basically now he's on the on the verge of dying and so he's given basically hours and that's what jack catches on to mason doesn't say anything but jack catches on to it because he sees the coughing he sees the anti-nausea medicine and things like that that okay something's up here he's not the way he should be so even though jack hadn't been in contact with him he saw him just a couple hours before and then he saw him after being exposed that, okay, something happened in the last couple hours that is not good. And so that's what Jack used to convince George to let him go and talk to Nina. See, if George would have just stayed in his office like he was supposed to, <laughs> he wouldn't have been, he probably wouldn't have been sent to stake out that address. So George and, and, and his infinite wisdom of trying to get outside the blast radius indirectly put him in the line of sight <laughs> to go to stake out that address. Yeah. So that <laughs> that's 100% George Mason. And when you look at the pictures of Nina, it almost makes season one even more profound because you think of that entire day. Because remember the, the complaint that I had last week about how it just came out of nowhere and there was no hint of it or anything at all. And, and you think about, the amount of care she showed for Jack in season one, the amount of the conversations they had, the the basically up until episode 23, how she was basically doing everything she can to protect Jack. And then you think, and then you look at these pictures here and you think about she was doing all of that, knowing that she had already given schematics to, to a terrorist group to bomb CTU. So that makes, you know, what happened in season one, even more nefarious on Nina's part. Yeah, now I I don't know if she knew that it was what it was going to be used for, but still selling the schematics. I mean, you know, it's not going to be for something good. It's not like they're planning a <laughs> surprise party or something. Yeah, you, when you sell schematics <laughs> and and to a sketchy organization, I'll say you know you know they're not, you know they're not going to do it to to you know plant some lights or some new alarm systems. Okay, mm-hmm. even if she didn't know exactly what was going to happen she knew that something bad was going to happen. So, mm-hmm. and that just makes, when you see that, it puts, you know, her and Jack's relationship in season one in a whole new context. I think that, you know, with her and Jack, when Jack kept asking Joe, 
who told you to bomb CTU? Who told you to, you know, who gave you the schematics? As soon as he said the word schematics, the first person I thought of was Nina. Even without, you know, seeing the season before, the first person I thought of was Nina because I was like, unless they're going to do a mold, you know, this early in the, in the second season after they just got done with one in the end of season one, unless they're going to do one this early, it has to be Nina because she's the one that would have the most access to those schematics. She's not there anymore. So the first person I thought of was Nina. And George, I will give George a little credit. He was in the back of the ambulance. He asked Tony how Paula was doing. And then he asked the the medic, am I contagious? And when the medic told him no, that's when he made the decision to basically come back to CTU to help out. Because, I mean, there's no point in getting outside of the blast radius now because I'm going to be dead in a couple of hours anyway. So so there's no point in going outside the blast radius now. So him coming back and, and even what he did with Paula, basically forcing them to keep her there long enough to, you know, give them the decryption code for all of the information that they uploaded to the NSA servers. Also thanks to Mr. Rayburn. So I think George started off season two basically the same way he ended season one, not being a likable character, <laughs> putting everybody's lives in danger and only looking out for himself. But, uh, and I think that Jack saw that when Jack saw there was something wrong, you know, Jack is like a shark that smells blood. <laughs> when, he, when, he, when he sees a, a weakness that he can exploit, you know, Jack is going to dive right into it. So as soon as Jack saw that George was compromised, if you will, that's really all Jack needed to to be able to get what he wanted. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And so, of course, um, we'll probably come back to the whole thing between Jack and Nina next week as we continue down that that road. But while all this is going on, too, like I said, at CTU, there's all these different threads that they're following up on. And so the one that Mason followed up on where the bomb was one of them. But... They also got a call at one point of a possible contact in a terrorist group, and that is Reza. And so we have two different people kind of investigating Reza then at this point is you have Kate, um, which we haven't talked about her, but we have uh, the, the Warner family. So we have the dad, Bob Warner, who his wife had died years before. And then you have his daughters, Kate and Marie. And Marie is getting ready to get married that day to a guy named Reza. and. And Reza is of Middle Eastern descent. There's kind of already that kind of uh, bias, that sort of prejudice being pushed in that regards. I don't think it's being pushed by Kate per se. It definitely comes into a portion of a profiling because, of course, CTU is looking for a Middle Eastern group. And here's a guy that comes flagging with potential ties to a terrorist group from the Middle East. So anyway, so Kate is investigating Reza though, because this is someone that's going to be her brother-in-law and she wants to make sure that he checks out, make sure everything's good with him. And all of a sudden she gets this call from the private investigator saying, Hey, he's got this tie to this account that's tied to an organization. And, and it's like, what? He's connected to a terrorist organization. And this happens all the time throughout all these. Now, now most of the time in on the show, the, the connection is ends up being true, but just because he does something with an organization that has ties to a terrorist organization doesn't necessarily mean that that person themselves is directly involved. But anyway, <laughs> and so we, we saw this uh, season four with Audrey's husband. I've lost his name, but, but anyway, 
we'll get to that one later. So anyway, so CTU gets wind of Reza. And so Tony takes a couple guys to go out to the house to question Reza, as well as talk to Bob and the others to be able to try to figure out, okay, Reza, who's your connection? Why are you connected with this? And he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. And of course, it's, yeah, 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 yeah. They, they all say they don't know what we're talking about. Blah, 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 blah. Okay, we're taking you in. That all takes place. And of course, Marie comes in and finds out and it's like, what? And so she's all angry because Kate got got her nose in there and hired the investigator and now he's being falsely accused but he's still getting taken in because there's enough evidence and so it's definitely a lot of drama and and all that i don't remember if these first six episodes if Ray's actually gets taken to ctu yet but anyway i can't remember but i do one of my favorite parts of the first two seasons is such a rarity throughout the first couple of seasons so whenever you see Tony go out into the field, you know it's for something important. Because through the first, you know, few seasons, that rarely happens. You know, he's mostly in the office, you know, handling things from CTU. So when whenever he goes out into the field, you know it's for something important. And, you know, it's probably my Tony I made a bias coming through. But <laughs> um, <laughs> I really enjoyed him. You could see the evolution of his character in season two compared to season one. Because season one, he was kind of, he was there, but he was kind of in the background. You know, there was Jack, there was Nina, there was George, then there was Tony. So he was kind of, you know, in the background a little bit. He was, he was by the book. He was trying to make sure that everything was done according to code. But by the end of season one and into season two, you saw Tony kind of come into his own a little bit you know, taking a little bit more charge, kind of uh, still doing things by the book, but not necessarily strictly following the book. And I think when he went out of the field and his interrogation of Reza and the Warners and everything like that, you can tell that Tony wasn't buying any of it. Like, <laughs> he was just, he was like, look, we're on a time crunch here and you're not telling me what I need to know. So we're just, we're just going to take you to CTU and then we're going to find out what we need to know from there. And I think that Tony and season, I call season two kind of Tony's coming out party, so to speak, of how he was going to be in future seasons. And <laughs> hearing the banner back and forth between him and George, you know, throughout those first six episodes was <laughs> hilarious. Because every time he called George, you can tell that he didn't really have much respect for George. Like when George was leaving CTU, and Tony was like, hey, if you just want to get outside the blast radius, you know, <laughs> let us know. I think that it's kind of funny because he was on George's side in season one. Because remember, he's the one that called George when he thought Jack was going outside the law. So he called George to initiate the lockdown. And then in season two, to see how their relationship turned so adversarial, I guess I could say is one of the little comparisons that you can make between season one and season two to see how certain relationships have changed from season one to season two and how certain characters have evolved, specifically Tony, because I think out of all the characters, out of all the holdovers from season one, I think it's pretty clear that Tony made the biggest leap forward as far as his character and how it's evolved. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree that that Tony definitely starts to blossom as you can say and it is interesting because like like you made 
like you stated, that a lot of Tony's scenes are take place at CTU, but then there's these couple times when he goes out. And so there's when he goes out in, in season one, it's to help save Terry. And then also, isn't he the one that, that went and got uh, Kim at the end? pick her up from the jail or was supposed to no he um he got kim out of jail and then the officer was transporting her back to ctu when that's what it was when the moat when it got hit again and then she got kidnapped again that's what it was yeah and then this time was to do this in season three he goes out and and then he's in the mall and he gets (laughs) shot so maybe he should have stayed (laughs) at the office but we know that was kind of somewhat part of the plan but, yeah, and then and then of course season four was by far my favorite Tony pop up ever when Jack and Audrey are about to get killed and Tony just comes out of nowhere. Yeah, but we'll we'll talk about that later. Yeah, great great comeback. But anyway, <laughs> but yeah, so so anyway, so all this is going on and we haven't talked about Kim yet, other than the the fact that she's trying to stay away from Jack and trying to move on with her life and establish a, her own new life and things like that. But apparently she hasn't been nanny for very long and it's still kind of new where she's at. And she starts to learn that there's a lot of abuse that is going on from the dad, Gary. And he has a short temper. He likes his things just right, exactly. And things like that. And and if it's not, then he gets all upset. He blows up and then he wipes things down and acts like everything's fine. And it's crazy. Kim sees all this and he sees that he kills the mom. Actually, I don't know if at this point she knew that the mom was killed, but he attacks Megan, the daughter, and they get scared. She takes Megan and they, they go hiding. She's going to take plans on taking her to the hospital to get checked out. But then Gary calls it in and flags her as a kidnapper and so now there's this whole subplot that's going on with Kim where she's trying to get away from Gary with Megan and trying to get her to safety and of course so she talks to authorities no one's believing her because I mean the dad just reported her missing and all that and yeah it's overall the whole storyline with Kim in this is subpar it's it's about on the same level for me as it was with the amnesia with Terry the storyline with Kim felt like it was just there to give her something to do that was separate from Jack. That's really all it felt like. At the end of the day, it felt like it was just there to give her a purpose in the beginning of the season. Because unless she's getting kidnapped by whoever's responsible for the day's events, you know, she doesn't really have much purpose. <laughs> so I think that storyline, it really, I mean, most of the storyline especially through the first six episodes, just involved her and Megan running. I mean, that was Mm -hmm. pretty much it. (laughs) Just her and Megan running, and then, you know, Gary will pop out of nowhere and start running after him. But Gary was obviously not a good guy. And on the surface, he would have probably been a decent villain. But I just think that the entire storyline was just contrived and kind of there wasn't too much thought put into it because like I said, most of the, most of the first six episodes just involved her and Megan running. And that was pretty much it. There was no, not too much action involved or anything like that. Just, I mean, there was that one fight scene between her and Gary in the alley. Um, But other than that, there wasn't really too much action involved. It was just her and Megan running, which Mm -hmm. I get it. You know, they wanted to give her her own, I guess her own spotlight, so to speak. But I thought a little bit more thought could have been put into that storyline than, than it was because it just 
it came out of nowhere. I mean, the first episode, all three of them were fine. And then, you know, by the second episode, all of a sudden they were on the run. So, it's, so it's, that's one of the, one of my issues with 24 is, you know, everything happens in real time, so to speak. But a lot of these arcs and storylines just pop out of nowhere with no rhyme or reason behind them, just, you know, to have them there. Mm, yeah. And I thought, I thought the storyline with Kim was a pretty good example of that because you could tell that it was just done just to give her something to do. Yeah. Or maybe just to fill, fill time in between the other scenes that were going on. It's like, oh yeah, there's Kim that's go doing this thing. Let's show her running for a couple minutes. Oh no, what does she need to do? Oh, she's in a corner now. Let's hide behind these boxes. Oh no, the, the kid's gone. He disappeared. Yeah. It's, it, it was crazy. It seemed like, like, okay, we signed her up for season two. You know, she's signed on as a series regular, so we got to have something for her to do. So let's, let's just put her in as a, let's just put her in a angle with a deranged dad. Okay. Let's have her go from the kidnappee to the kidnapper. <laughs> so it was ridiculous, but gave her something to do, I guess. Yeah. So that goes on and that storyline kind of continues for quite a while under in the undercurrent of the season but we have with david palmer so as we start this season david palmer is on vacation basically spending some time with his son they're out fishing nice quiet morning they're just trying to catch up and then he gets called in just after a couple minutes i don't know how long they were actually out there on the lake but probably not too awfully long that's when he's told about the whole bomb and all that kind of stuff and david is having the or i should say president palmer that'd be the more respectful and so it's <laughs> so president palmer president. <laughs> <laughs> and so president palmer is taking the situation on the basis of i'm not going to attack someone where there's not proof that an attack is warranted and his policies on that regard are being challenged saying that he's soft and that he's not willing to take action when action needs to be taken and things like that. Of course, we know that David Palmer is not that way. He is very much a man that is able to make those hard decisions and, and be able to take action when it needs to be, but he doesn't want to take it, especially on a global scale with a country when there hasn't been sufficient evidence yet. And, and of course, they're pushing this whole thing real time, 24-hour format. So it's like everything has to be done now. It's not like, okay, <laughs> let's give them a couple hours to give us some answers. No, we need to, okay, you tell me now or push, there's the button. We need to blow them up now. It's, it's, like, it's like, okay, calm down. In real life, it doesn't usually move that fast. But yeah, it really doesn't happen <laughs> that way. <laughs> but anyway, so he's trying to deal with that. And of course, then his staff is split on how he's reacting to this. And you have Eric working with the, so, so he's part of NSA and he has the opinion that we need to go out, take action now. Let's like blow things up, ask questions later. And then you have on the opposite side, you have, what's her name, Lynn, and she's on the more on David's side, maybe doesn't agree with everything, but she's also of the source. She's the one that wanted to tell David about CTU getting blown up or the or the plan for it to be able to get people evacuated or at least let David uh, Palmer know so that he can make the decision, but she was stopped from being able to do that. So Eric, he's, he's not a good guy, but we also know that he's a pawn as we start seeing later on to where he's not the only one that is 
doing this. Roger Stanton that comes in, he's the superior to Eric and he's actually behind it as well. And Eric was just kind of taking the blame, even though he, he was definitely involved in it. But anyway, we're kind of getting ahead of the story here. But anyway, so Eric gets taken out because the truth comes out eventually and all that. So it's a lot of drama in the president's cabinet. Dave, excuse me, President Palmer <laughs> is another uh, character whose character changed pretty significantly from season one to season two. I mean, if you watch season one, he was kind of on the straight and narrow, no secrets. You know, let's tell the American people the truth and then let them decide what they want to do. Kind of man of the people. And he was still that way for the most part of season two. But you kind of noticed that he was willing to go a little bit further to protect, I guess, the American people. Like you saw with um, the reporter, uh, Whelan. And, you know, Whelan's going to go forth with this story at 12 o'clock, you know, about, you know, the threat level's been changed and the president's not telling anybody. He calls him in for an interview, a few minutes interview. And as Whelan is leaving, he makes a phone call to one of the Secret Service guys. You know, I think we need to take care of this. And you can tell I'll do Bradley a favor and shout out Sean Callery in this. <laughs> Give his resident Sean Callery plug. The music that was playing when President Palmer made the call, we need to take care of this, the, the ominous music. Like, I personally thought he was going to die. <laughs> I thought he was going to get executed or something just based on the music. But they basically take him to this, I guess, black site, if you want to call it, to keep him away from, you know, going forward with that story. And you can tell, like, the David Palmer, the Senator Palmer of season one, probably wouldn't have done this. <laughs> but President Palmer of season two, he's feeling a little bit more confident in his decisions and a little bit more sure of himself, you know, now that he's the president. You can kind of see the little nuances of the changes in his character, that he's a little bit, he doesn't let outside sources dictate what decisions he makes. Whereas, you know, season one, he had information flown to him from all different directions and looking to advice from, you know, all different people. But in season two, he's kind of, okay, this is my decision and this is final. You know, there's pretty much nobody that can talk him out of it. So I thought that it was a more confident President Palmer, but at the same time, it was a more, it wasn't the baby face straight narrow president david palmer that we saw that we saw in season one mm -hmm. although i have to say that there was a significant flaw that palmer had in this season and that is when he agreed to let sherry come back to assist well, that's always <laughs> in, a flaw. in the situation because she has contacts and no questioning where she gets these contacts or why she's associating with people that have this supposed information, which is like, oh yeah, let me make some calls. I know some people and they can be able to get some answers. And I mean, <laughs> if, if he didn't learn his lesson from season one and all the things that she did, all the underhanded things that she was involved in, the cover-ups and the lies and all of that, you would think that he would learn it after season two. But then he allows her to come back in season three again, which again, we're getting ahead of ourselves, but apparently she is a like almost quick kryptonite to to David it's it's like he doesn't want to have her but it's like eh, maybe it can help and he was obviously very desperate at that moment we need to get some answers she says she has some answers that can help but 
that was definitely a mistake to bring her in. Isn't it always though? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Isn't it always a mistake to look for Sherry for anything? But you could tell, like even even though you know they weren't together anymore, you could tell that he still cared for her as the mother of their children. He yeah. said, you saw in season one when he was talking to Keith, he was like, how's your mom doing? You know, he still cared for her as the mother of their children, but he also knows that, hey, <laughs> she doesn't need to be anywhere near me or the presidency. And the fact that they had to turn to her to basically help with the situation probably hurt David more than anything, <laughs> anything else that happened throughout the entire season up until the final episode. Because he he said, in fact, he said at the end of season one, I never want to see you again. And then 18 months later, here she is. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's kind of deja vu, I guess, for, for President Palmer. But at, at the same time, it's he may not want to, but he's like, okay, maybe she has information that can help us. If she has information that can help us, then she's useful. If not, you know, put her back on that plane and send her back where she came from. <laughs> yeah. So as we kind of wrap up these first six episodes and leading into the next episode, we have talked about Jack and Nina. And so Jack goes in to interrogate Nina and, and that's when they come up with an agreement that she's going to, she has information. Um, another one that not a good person to try to make an agreement with because she's very underhanded, but anyway, so, so they decide to, to work with her in this sting operation to, to be able to try to get to the next lead and be able to get information, get the person and all that. So, the, so that's where we're going to be starting next week as we get into this. And so that's one of Nina's favorite lines, you know, throughout the first three seasons when she wants to keep from dying is I have information. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what yet. You can't kill me yet. I still have more. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't you want to know who I work for? <laughs> so it's that one little thread that she tries to dangle in front of Jack to keep him from killing her. I have information yeah. or, you know, <laughs> if you want to get to the people I work for, you got to keep me alive kind of thing. But anyway, so, so that, that, that's what we'll be starting next week is, is with that there. And so we're going to go ahead and wrap it up for this week. Thank you, Joel, for your marvelous insight. I'm trying to trooper. pick up the slack from Bradley. <laughs> well, nobody can talk as much as Bradley, but I, th- but I tried to do my best. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm sure there's a lot of insights that Bradley had that we overlooked and maybe he'll share some of that next week. I don't know, but I can almost guarantee he will. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So thank you for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode. Mm-hmm.